Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cloud Wars Live, the digital revolutions in full swing. Categories are emerging out of nowhere. They're being discovered, pushed forward, changed, adapted, and we've got the world's leading authority on category design, creation, and amplification here. Our dear friend, Christopher Lockhead, who comes, talks with us every month about Lockhead on different. Christopher, it is a great pleasure to see you. How are you? Senator, it's great to be with you as always. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the lighting in there. You've got a sort of a beatific look to you today. Uh, I think that it is special. You can tell you've got some good things on your mind. <laughs> I do. Lots to talk about. And I have, uh, I have, I come bearing data. Oh. Right? We like data, don't we? Lovely. We do. We do. Sounds good. So off the top, you talked about, you know, this is a, a time of category explosion. And, you know, and I think we talked about this a little bit last time about sort of, we've been in this cocoon time, we're still kind of in this cocoon time. Um, and there's going to be these banister effects, Roger Bannister, who broke the four minute mile. And of course, after he broke it, many others did the same. And so we're seeing these, these banister effects everywhere. Um, and obviously, the the highest profile one probably has to be the uh, the belief that it take took 10 to 15 years to create a virus. And of course, uh, people are getting shots in their arms now and, and the virus was created in roughly nine months and is being rolled out. And so all of a sudden, we now know that it doesn't take 10 or 15 years. It, it, when we get focused, it could take nine months. And so these banister effects are happening everywhere and they're happening probably um, most profoundly in our industry. And as we go through our discussion today, there's there's sort of a meta one I want to touch on um, uh, as, the, as our last point today. But the bottom line is, um, you know, I've been doing this for damn near 35 years, Bob. Mm -hmm. And there has never been a greater time in our industry than right now. There is more technology innovation, product innovation, company innovation, and therefore category design and creation happening um, than ever before. And recently we... Um, we conducted some primary research. Uh, I've started this new, the biggest new thing in my life in the last, since the beginning of the year, I've started this new newsletter with um, uh, Eddie Yoon and uh, the legendary Nicholas Cole. And um, Eddie has that awesome management consulting background. And so he's really good at primary research. And so we've been having some fun doing some research. And, and one of the things we did was we went back and we looked at the Fortune 100 fastest growers list. So they produce a list every year of the fastest growing companies in the US. And we looked at it over a decade. And um, we designed, we created this thing called the category design scorecard, which is you could think of it as a Pentagon, there's the five key elements of what makes a company that is um, defining and creating a new category. Um, and so we, 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 we developed that lens through a bunch of research over decades. And what we did here, Eddie led, Ed, led by Eddie, was we did some big data analysis and we looked at the uh, fastest growers and we applied the category design scorecard to figure out which companies were actually trying to design a category and be different and which companies were competing in a more traditional way, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so we found that the companies sort of lined up in these three big buckets over the decade. 60% of them, when you analyze their, their filings and their press releases and their websites and things along those lines, their advertising and marketing, 
fell into a bucket you could think of as be the winner. And so the way they communicated to uh, the world was they were going to beat the competition and they were going to win. And so there's lots of competition about, or lots of conversation about winning, lots of conversation, conversation about beating the competition, they're comparing, et cetera. And so that's a pretty traditional way of trying to compete in a category. And 60% of the fastest growers were doing that. <clears throat> Further, we found that 20% were trying to win by having the best product or service, the be the best companies. And so most of their marketing, most of their communications were about how, how their products were better than anyone else's and were the best and were better. And again, playing a, a comparison game, but this one, not, not so much we're the winner in the market category, but this one being we're the best in the product category. And the final bucket were the uh, category designers, the companies who were, you could think of as be different companies where they were espousing their different and they were, they were clearly had some kind of a point of view about the future. And uh, there was something unique that they were trying to evangelize. And so they were trying to compete on different. So three buckets, be the winner, be the best, and be different. 60% in the winner bucket, and then 20% in both the best and the different bucket. Okay, so that's interesting. But then we did some research on, okay, so these are fast growing companies. So this is not like some group of companies that are losers and some group of companies that are winners. These are all fast growing companies. We did some digging on, okay, so what percentage of the revenue growth went to the uh, category designers that be different companies? And what percentage of market cap growth did they achieve as compared to the other 80%? And what we discovered is the category designers, the be different companies, captured about 51% of the revenue growth and 80% of the market cap growth. And so the aha here is um, the companies that are trying to design and dominate new categories capture a disproportionate amount of the revenue and a significantly disproportionate amount of the value created as measured by, uh, as measured by market cap. And so I think that's very instructive for all of us uh, in our careers and in our companies, because if we wanna build valuable companies, the most valuable companies are the ones that are trying to do something that's radically or exponentially different. Chris, this is, uh, you know, remarkable data there that you, you brought up. And, you know, those aren't, um, those aren't things like, you know, those numbers of 51% of revenue growth, 80% of market cap growth. You can't look at that and say, yeah, well, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's on the border of being compelling. <laughs> that's pretty wild. But this also is reflective, Chris, right? Of So, Mark, you had done what was that, seven, eight years ago, it played different, you know, similar. So, so this, this is not a, an anomaly here. No, that's right. When, um, uh, when my first book came out, we did some primary research uh, that was published by the HBR. And it was on a similar vein where we looked at this. So the research we just did was with the Fortune 100 yeah. list. So typically bigger companies, public companies. The research we did for Play Bigger was, we looked at private companies, uh, startups, primarily Silicon Valley based, but companies that you and I would call tech companies, right? Venture backed startups. And we asked what percentage of the market cap that gets created in any given new category goes to the leader or if you will, the category queen. And that number was 76%. 
And so there's an eerie similarity in some of yes. this data. Wow. And, and, you know, I'll tell you, we are not manipulating this data. I mean, when you publish data in the HBR, um, th there might be no more difficult business publication in the world to get data published in. I'll tell you that they, they, they give you a pretty serious proctology exam on the data. You, in our case, we had to give them the entire uh, original data set, all of the analysis so they could see the thing top to bottom. Anyway, it, regardless, when we look at this data, we're finding a similar thing, which is if you say the job ultimately of the executive team is to, is to build a company of uh, enduring value, well, value on a financial metric is measured by the value of the company. In a private company, that's valuation. Of course, in a public company, that's market cap. And so the data we see here is telling us over and over and over again that a disproportionate amount of the market cap goes to the company that has the courage to be different and evangelize a, uh, a different or unique category design. And Chris, you know, again, I think that tie that back into what you sort of opened with there that, you know, what an extraordinary time this is both for, um, people being willing to accept different things done in different ways, different approaches. They want something that's more personalized, something that's unique, something that they feel has a, a unique connection to them and what they do. And uh, it, it is also something that's got to scare the crap out of, uh, you know, some midsize and big companies that have a traditional mindset, right? Because they could poo poo it a little bit and say, no, 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 you know, this is a fad, this is a phase, a hula hoop, people will come back to us and I don't know. That's that's going to be a that that would be a tough bet to uh, you know, to put to put your livelihood on here at the beginning of 2021. And I think this the data that you put out, you know, invest investors pay for differentiation for unique category stuff. There, Chris, what where do you see this this heading? Well, I think the big there's a big aha here which is at a high level, I think there's pretty much only two kinds of people in business. There are people for people who are betting on the future looking a lot like the past. Mm -hmm. And there are people who are betting on the future being different. And you see it in the stock market, right? There are, um, quote, value investors, and quote, growth investors. And I think right now, and look, I'm not a stock picker, or stock analyst or any of that stuff. So caveat, 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 you know, math was over for me in grade three. So you're talking to a stupid alcoholic. Um, but, but that said, um, the aha here is that um, the company's focused on growth. The company's focused on different. The company's focused on doing something exponential. Are, and of course, they have to achieve it, but they're the ones that are the most valued. And it's interesting that uh, we live in a world where there's multiple trillion dollar companies today, right? Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, et cetera. And, and there will be more. And we will have a $2 trillion company while you and I are alive. It won't be that far off. And you look at things like the fact that Tesla is worth more than all the other car companies combined plus plus, right? And so what we're seeing here, and this is a, a big misunderstanding that investors have, but I think as importantly, or maybe even more importantly, executives and business people, um, companies are valued not on prior performance. They're valued on future potential. And so the reason everybody goes, oh, Tesla's market cap, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> well, um, 
It depends on what you believe. It depends on what lens you use. See, if you look at, if you take 2007 Blockbuster and Netflix and you use the traditional lens, the financial lens, the spreadsheet lens, uh, everybody would say to you, well, Blockbuster is one of the best run companies in the world and Netflix is a silly toy. And we all know how that changed, right? And so planning for the future to be the same as the past is a really big fucking mistake. And what, what this data is showing us is the people slash companies that create the future, that change the future, that move things from the way it is to a whole new way are the ones that most get rewarded. And that's on the financial side. What I tell you on the personal side is, and look, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You've, you've spent an entire career of trying to do exponential things as opposed to incremental things. On a personal basis, look, it's not true for all of us, so I don't want to be overly pejorative, but most of us want to do things that matter. Most of us want to be involved with things that are exponential. And if you're in the tech industry, chances are you know, most people in the tech industry got into it because it was cool. It was forward-leaning. We, we had a chance to create a future, to impact humanity, to change things for companies in a positive way. And what I'm saying is there's, there's a two, two, there's a, there's a jab and a cross punch happening right now, which is number one, the data is clear. The companies and the people who uh, design the future categories are the ones who get rewarded financially. That's very, very clear. Everyone else is fighting over market share and the category designers are creating net new demand where demand did not exist before. Chris, that's a, as always, interesting point. Let's take a break here for a word from BMC, our sponsor. BMC wants to know, is your business on its A game? That's when systems are intelligent by learning from markets where automation is paramount yet effortless. And when technology and people work as one in an enterprise, the A game is your business at its absolute best. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. Find out more at bmc.com slash a game. And so I think that what this is telling us is a, there's a huge economic case for being a category designer. B, if you believe what I believe, which is there's a, there are banister effects happening in virtually every part of how we live, work and play. Then those of us with the talent, those of us with the creativity, those of us with the technology chops, with the management chops and experience, this is the greatest time to be in business. This is the greatest time to have a career because as we've talked about on prior episodes, the future needs you. The future is begging to be created. And we've never lived at a time where there was a game of jump ball for the future, where the sort of future is asking for exponential. You think about so much that has changed in 12 months, right? So the world, the receptivity to innovation is, is at the highest point ever in human history, more than likely. And we know for a fact that from a purely economic and financial perspective, the individuals and the companies that are willing to design the future, to create the technologies and innovations and categories going forward are the ones that are most handsomely rewarded. And so my point is, we're at this interesting point in time that I think most people haven't necessarily connected the dots on, which is the ability to innovate and the receptivity to innovate is at the highest point ever. And the economic rewards for people who can do that um, are massive. And those two things are now very, very clear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Chris, you've had different uh, as a part of your your brand, your business, your thinking for a few years now. And before we move off of this subject, because you know, I think you've touched on a lot of parts of it, but would you just take a minute or two when you, you talk about, because it, it, it's so central to your thinking, right? So it isn't just do something new uh, or so on like that, but would you just tell, talk a little bit about what you mean by, or what different means to you and why you think if you'd want to plant that idea in somebody's head, what does that mean? So I look at it on a couple levels, you know, there's a human personal level and there's a business sort of more data oriented level. On the human side, I think the aha here is, while we all connect on our similarities, you and I share many things. We share a love of the technology industry, uh, the technology itself. We have a set of uh, uh, core values and principles uh, that we share uh, and many other things we have in common, some similarities in our backgrounds and so forth. And so as human beings, we always look for those similarities. Oh, you went to the same school I went to, or you like the same team I went to or whatever, whatever. And that's a nice, you know, as a Canadian person, I always get this one, right? Oh, you're from Canada. Do you know Jim? <laughs> like, yeah, I know Jim. <laughs> There's 40, 40 million Canadians. <laughs> so, you know, so anyway, people try it's to a find- a small country. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, people try to find things to connect on where we're similar and, and that's cool and that makes all the sense in the world. But with that said, the truth is um, we, we most want to be accepted for, we most want to be valued for, and dare I say we most want to be loved for what makes us uniquely us. Because each of us, each of us, Bob, is a snowflake. <laughs> And so, so that's on a human level. Um, uh, on a business level, the aha here is a really simple one. And I'll, I'll share with you one of my favorite quotes from um, Kurt Cobain, who famously said, they laugh at me because I'm different. And I laugh at them because they're all the same. Mm -hmm. Now, why do we know Kurt Cobain's name? Well, most people would say he's the, he's the leader of Nirvana. And Nirvana was one of the greatest rock bands of all time. And I would agree with that. And the reason we know Kurt is because of that quote. He's a category designer. He created a new kind of rock music called grunge. He started a movement. There are many other bands that came after him. Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and so many others, right? Great, all legendary bands. But Kurt Cobain broke and took new ground, right? The first time people heard Nirvana, they'd never heard anything like it before. It was a completely new sound. And he changed the future of music in so doing. And that's why we know his name. And that's why they sold so many records. They were the first grunge band. And so the point here is, from a business perspective, is that the reason we know Kurt Cobain's name is the same reason we know Mark Benioff's name. Mark Benioff, more than any one other person, is responsible for the, the cloud. And you got to remember in 1998, I think they started in 97, 98. You and I were around, we know, right? In 1998, the idea of putting your data in the cloud was complete and total insanity. <laughs> in, a sur in a blind taste test, 10 out of 10 CIOs said no. And here we are. And so I think the learning here from a career and business point of view is the people who have the greatest careers are the ones who break and take new ground. And that's true with companies too. 
and uh, you know, there are riches and niches, and um, the most legendary people and the most legendary companies uh, become known for categories that they own. And yet only 20% of the companies even attempt to do it because we've been taught to compete. We've been taught the best product wins. We've been taught to play a comparison game when in point of fact, the most legendary innovators in the history of the world, and frankly, certainly of our industry, didn't do that. Mark Benioff was not competing with Tom Siebel in any traditional way. That's not what was happening. When Steve Jobs launches the iPhone, he is not competing with the BlackBerry in any way that you, you would recognize traditional competition. They're trying to move the world from one way to another way. They take big risks in doing it. They have to have a point of view. They have to take a educate and evangelize kind of perspective uh, with the market. And when they do that, they change things. And you can do it on a big basis and you can do it, you know, on a, on a much smaller basis, we can talk about smaller companies if you like, but the bottom line is all the rewards and I think all the fun are there and yet only 20% of the companies even attempt it. Uh-huh. Well, Chris, just that, <clears throat> that phrase used a minute ago, you know, about uh, uh, a blind test of CIOs uh, 20 years ago about what, you know, you use the cloud, no. And even without it being blind, but we put these blinders on us, right? Or <clears throat> if not blinders, at least limiters. Uh, so it's partly what we've taught, you know, the rewards of society. And I think it wouldn't be different if everybody or if most people went that way. So it's a really, really interesting outlook there. But I, I love what you've done here. You know, the work that you and Eddie did with this, uh, this latest round of data, because that's, again, that's not somebody you know, the sort of data somebody could look at 51%, 80% come in and say, yeah, well, it sort of depends on how you look at it. You know, any serious person would say, that's pretty remarkable. Maybe more people go in that direction. Maybe more companies will, but the facts are there. And it's, it's wonderful that you brought those out. Well, thank you. And I think the aha, the other sort of fun part of this is having lived in the category design world for the bulk of my professional life, so to speak. Um, I know that um, millions of people see this data and understand what category design is, and they're not going to do it. We have been so taught to compete. We've been so taught to compare. We've been so taught. You, you, would, never, you would never enter a $0 billion market. You would go to a market where there's lots of demand, right? Mm -hmm. And so these things are so deeply entrenched I don't know that we'll ever get to a point where 50% of companies even attempt to design a category. And so those of us who can figure out how to live on the edge of innovation and experiment with new technologies, new business models, and therefore uh, new category designs, um, we're always going to have an advantage because look, who knows what will happen in the future, but human beings are human beings. I get into arguments with people all the time. People call me names for saying all this stuff. There's a huge percentage of people who will never buy into that it's the people who are different that make the difference and it's the companies who are different that make all the money. There's, there's just most people, even though the facts are the facts, are going to continue to, um, I'll just say, drink the wine that they've been drinking. Let me put it to you that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, it reminds me a little bit uh, I remember I heard a guy once I was taking a, a, a 
class, some sort of master's class about uh, libel laws. It came out and the guy said, well, he said, you know, in law school, we say two things, you know, if, if you have the facts, pound the facts. If you have the law, pound the law. If you don't have either, you know, pound the podium. And, uh, you know, the, well, you're, you're, you're silly. You're a dreamer. You, your head's in the, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And everybody's heard that, right? You know, Kurt Cobain, heard it some other people you mentioned. And it, it cuts against the grain because we have also been conditioned, you know, all those things, compete, compete, business people condition, right? Think this week, this month, this quarter, if you really want to get crazy, think about the next year, but don't go beyond that because, you know. Exactly. That's, that's just not what we do. So, Chris, you had a couple of other pretty interesting uh, issues yeah. here to bring up. I want to talk to you about something that um, Eddie and uh, Cole and I have been involved with, with a handful of other folks actually in the um, faith-based world, uh, two pastors, uh, Quentin Murphy and, um, and Pastor Dave Ferguson, who are uh, both in the Chicago area. And here's the, 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 the so the, the idea is called justice deposits. And here's the aha. If you look at the data around how um, African-Americans are treated in the financial system in the United States of America, I believe the only conclusion you can come to is there is systemic racism. And I know it's hard for a lot of people to hear, but the data, again, is the data. Um, you know, major banks like Wells Fargo have been caught multiple times doing horrible things in terms of uh, uh, the, the, the number of loans that they approve, um, the interest rates they charge, you know, things along these lines. And the data is terrifying. So Brookings comes out and says the uh, average net worth of a typical white family in the United States of America is $171,000. Well, it turns out that's almost 10 times the average net worth of a typical black family whose net worth is at $17,000. We know for a fact that African-Americans face mortgage denial rates that are at least 2x higher than white Americans, and they pay um, higher interest rates. So that's sort of the first set of ahas. Like there's no, if you go and look at the data, it's terrifying. So that's sort of the first aha. The second one is, it, there are some people in this country who care about equality. And I don't, and if you care about equality, then you care about equality for everybody. And if you want equality, part of how you drive equality, of course, is economic equality. And so um, um, black folks are not treated fairly, and therefore they don't have the same economic opportunities that you and I have. It's just that simple. So that's sort of point A. Point B, it turns out there's only 19 Black-owned banks left in the United States of America. And as you know, there's been a huge consolidation in the financial industry that's been playing out over a multi-decade period. And so big banks are typically getting bigger and we're having less community banks and, and, and the like. Um, and of course, a Black-owned bank, and when you look at the data, it's very clear, it uh, does business with um, a set of black people who either A, were unbanked, B, underbanked, or C, getting fucked over by banks. Um, and then the next sort of big aha is banks can only loan what they have. And yes, they can do some leveraging and there's the ratios and blah, blah. But the reality is deposits, more deposits equals more loans at a very simple level. And you don't have to be an expert banker. And I'm certainly not an expert banker to understand that. And the other thing is, if you think about a loan on a human level, 
A loan is a dream coming true. A loan is paying off student debt. A loan is maybe buying a home. A loan is buying a car. Uh, a loan might be consolidating consumer debt in a way that you know you get off from a credit card that's charging you twenty percent or some some horrible interest rate. And so every loan's a dream. And the more deposits a bank has, the more it can lend. So we noticed at about the midpoint of last year, Bob, that there were a few companies that had sort of figured this out and had an aha about this, uh, Netflix being one, Costco being one, and a handful of others, and, and I applaud them all. And they, they sort of connected these dots, and they started to move some of their deposits to black-owned banks. And so we now today call that the justice deposits movement. And what we're trying to do is educate people to these facts and let people know that when you move money to a black owned bank, um, there's no disadvantage to you. So um, the, there's this thing at a federal level called the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And that's the federal government's insurance company that backs up deposits in banks. So if God forbid your bank goes under, you get your money back. And if I'm not mistaken, Bob, the FDIC insures accounts up to 250 grand. So that means essentially, if you have 250 grand in Wells Fargo, evil criminal bank, and you have 200, uh, 250 grand in one United Bank run by my friend Terry Williams, um, uh, and something happens to either one United or um, Wells Fargo, up to 25 grand, the US government will give you that money back in, in your insurance. And of course, most banks pay a very similar interest rate, so that's really mouse nuts. And if I'm not mistaken, Terry's bank has a better interest rate right now than Wells Fargo <laughs> does. Um, uh -huh. But hey, who's counting? And so, so the bottom line is this. If you move 10% of your net worth to one United or, or one of the other 18 uh, black banks in the United States, if it's an FDIC insured account, you can see what the interest rate is. It'll be the same plus or minus as an account in most other banks. And so my point is, at a base level, there's no difference between doing business with an evil bank like Wells Fargo and a black owned, uh, in this case, husband and wife team owned bank, uh, One United. And this aha is what woke up Netflix and Costco and a handful of others. And what we do know, Bob, is um, the more money that moves into uh, black run and black owned banks, the more money they have to lend out in loans. It's that simple. And Jamie Dimon has come out and said there's systemic racism in this country, in the, in the financial system. So when he says that, it's not just Christopher's opinion. And so we are doing everything we can to um, educate people about justice deposits, to let them know about this opportunity, uh, to let them know about some of these amazing uh, black-run banks. I'm biased towards uh, Terry and One United just because I've gotten to know them. She was on my podcast. A friend of mine is a friend of hers and so forth. Um, but the bottom line is a lot of these are great banks. And so um, uh, I would just ask you and everybody the question, where would a legend bank? Chris. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Pretty wild. Again, you you often lead with data, um, and you've certainly shared some here. Can I ask one? Uh, you know, Netflix. What was it? June of 2020. So a year, nine months ago, 
but they said they moved 2%. Why wouldn't, that's great. hundred million dollars, that's a lot of money. If it's a good idea, why not 5%? Why not 10%? I know you're not a spokesperson for Netflix, but I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm puzzled about that. So I can't speak for any one company, of course. I have no association with Netflix or, or uh, and so forth. What I think's going on is, I think if, so this is pure speculation. I'm just making this up. I think if you're the CFO of Netflix or Costco or any of the companies that have been early pioneers here, um, the reality is the capability of pick your normal bank, Citibank, and the enorm and the capability of a One United is different. So there's no question about that. You know, One United has, I forget exactly how many, six, eight, 10, 12 locations, whatever it is. And they, they're capitalized at the level they're capitalized and so forth and so on, but they're not a competitor to Citibank, right? And so I think if you're the CFO of a major public corporation, you are by nature conservative and doing business with financial institutions who are well known to you, who are conservative with a ton of resources and a ton of backing and so forth and so on um, is a much more comfortable place to do business. And, you know, you have a very real fiduciary responsibility and that looms a little large in your thinking. Um, so I think it sort of starts there. And so I think we're on a process. And I think as people get comfortable with doing business with banks they haven't done business with before, they immediately begin to realize, you know, so I've moved some of my money, as you might expect, right? Uh, you got you to gotta walk your talk here, right? And what you realize um, with, at least in my case, with One United is they're a wonderful bank. And they actually feel like they care a shit ton more about me than my bank that I've been doing business with for a long time. At least they send me way nicer emails. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, maybe they just have a better email game. I don't know. But um, so I think as major corporations, as CFOs, as treasurers, as boards, um, as, as governance committees, uh, audit committees and the like, begin to realize that, um, you know, some of these black owned banks are very serious corporations with uh, super big capability. And thanks to Twitter, uh, thanks to Netflix, thanks to Costco, um, they're leading the way and showing other Fortune 500 companies, you can do this. And so, um, you know, we, we want to have over $100 billion move to Black-owned banks, because mm -hmm. if we do that, we're going to change the future of this country. Um, and this is an underserved community. This is a community that, when is financially supported, has shown itself to create net new wealth. They've become great customers. Guess what? There's an incredible spirit and track record of entrepreneurship in the black community in this country that goes back many, many, many decades. And so, um, you know, black entrepreneurs are massively fucked over and underrepresented, underrepresented. And we know there's a, a rich history there. So I think as this justice deposits move, move, movement continues, will we see a day where a major corporation does 30% of their business with one of these banks? I, I think it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Chris, thanks for raising that. Uh, these are, you know, good things for people to know about. Uh, you know, again, that the, the disparities there that you described uh, with some of the data, 19 Black-owned banks left. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't 
recall running into a lot of people who, you know, one of the first or second or third thing they talk about is, gosh, I like doing business with my bank. You know, I just, excuse me, I'm going to end this conversation now because I want to go over, hang out at the bank and, you know, stand in line or, you know, fill out more forms and, you know, have them treat me like they never met me before when actually I've done their, you know, work with them a long time. So there's, man, you talk about a, uh, business and industry ripe for some disruption. There it is. There it is. So um, that was that was great, Chris. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, My pleasure. And I hope that um, more companies do it, more faith-based organizations, churches and the like, consider doing it. Where would Jesus bank? It's one of my new favorite questions. And uh, you and I as individuals can do that. You know, if you move 10% of your banking activity or more, um, uh, as, as we are in the process of doing right now, um, uh, it's going to make a very big difference. Do you have, Chris, or could you point to a site or URL that might list these 19 Black-owned banks? Yeah, I, I don't have it off the top of my head. I do have one for you. I'll send it to you, and uh, okay. if you like, you guys can include it in your show notes. There's a new one that just started that's a digital uh, bank that's, that I read about very recently. I forget the name of it. sounds very, very cool. Uh, and, and again, this is the United States of America. You don't have to live where there's a, a branch to do business right. with them, right? There's this thing called the internet <laughs> this is to do banking today. <laughs> where do I find the internet? Yeah, um, uh, I, 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 I think it's uh, three doors down on the right. Okay, okay. Um, now, Chris, I think a, a classic Lockhead subheadline here, you say the future just changed and most people missed it. Yes, I think we just had a um, seminal change in the technology industry and in human evolution, if I could go so far. And uh, I don't think most people saw it. So, um, and it's the move to, uh, I think it's a tipping point in our digital lives. So you and I have talked about this a lot. Uh, and I, if, you, if you remember, I shared with you a story a while ago about a friend of mine who visited from the UK with his children. Yes. Yes. And we were watching the sunset and all that. And the kids are not paying attention to the sunset in the ocean. And I had this aha. And the aha was, you know, because I kept giving them a hard time because I'm their crazy uncle. I'll say, hey, uh, put down your phone and look at the sunset, right? And of course, they don't do that. And they just find <laughs> me irritating. And so the aha, if you remember, is if you're under the age of plus or minus 30, maybe even 35, you are uh, a native digital which means your digital life is your primary life and your what you and I might call our real lives or our physical lives or our anal analog lives uh, are an adjunct to your digital life. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're 180 degrees different than you and I. You and I both have rich digital lives. You and I are now digital media mega stars. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You have to be a legend in somebody's mind. You know, you got to start with your own. Um, and so we have rich digital lives and, and so forth and so on. And there's, but it's an adjunct to our physical life. Um, if you're 16, that's not true. It's the opposite. You're a native digital. Okay. So that's, you know, we've talked about that. Aha. I think that's a very, very profound shift. The next profound shift is if you're native digital, it stands to reason that you value purchasing things in your digital life over purchasing things in your physical life. 
So there's some research out uh, of late. Now it was done by a, a cell phone insurance company. So caveat, caveat. But um, they are they made the case through some research that uh, in the United States, people value their phones more than they value their cars. Now, look, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I do know the following. Some meaningful percentage of people in the Western world sleep with their phone next to them. And almost none of us sleep with our car next to them. <laughs> and so, so what the aha here is, is that our digital lives, it, particularly if you're native digital, is more important than your physical life. And regardless of whether you're native digital or not, the value and importance of our digital life um, is another exponential banister effect-like change that's happened in the last 12 months. Okay, so... What just happened? Well, very recently, Bob, someone sold a GIF on the internet for $6.6 .6 million. So I just want to make sure that you and I are having the right conversation here. <laughs> yes. Somebody paid $6.6 million. Now you can't live on that, Bob, but it's a nice start. Yeah. For a GIF. <laughs> to be the exclusive owner of said GIF. Although if you Google it, you can go look at it anytime you want, but they, they, own, they own the zeros and ones, Bob. They own the original zeros and ones. Is it, would you call it modern digital GIF, modern digital art, uh, post-modern, post-digital? Well, some people call it post-sanity digital art. <laughs> yes, well, there's that, there is that. I didn't want but, to be judgmental, but. But see, here's the point. aha. To people like you and me, this is easy to make fun of. Yes. What I'm saying is, um, if you're native digital, the idea of buying a painting is fucking stupid to you. <laughs> you're like, painting? First of all, it could get ripped. It could get ruined. It fades. I can't take it anywhere. Right. Uh, I, maybe I want to be able to project it on the wall over here, yeah. or maybe I want to take it with me when I get on a plane, if I'm ever allowed to get on a plane again or whatever the fuck. Right. And so if your digital life is equal in importance to your physical life, then buying shit in your digital life starts to make sense for you. And it turns out this is part of a massive wave called NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Mm -hmm. And it's essentially a simple, simple way of using blockchain. And I know you guys talk about this shit a lot um, to, um, to capture value in a digital asset of one sort or another and control access to that digital asset, right? And when you have that capability using the blockchain and this approach called NFTs, you can sell a digital product. And it turns out for people, people for whom their digital life matters that much to them, they're buying digital products at crazy rates. Now, look, for years we've had people buying uh, Farmville tractors and shit and, you know, guns, rifles and first shooter games. And, you know, so people have been buying digital products to play games and do other things for quite a while. And Second Life has been around for quite some time. But I say this is a tipping point. We've never had a piece of art sold for $6.6 .6 million. And this actually ties to our conversation on category. Fundamentally, what category design is about is teaching the world to value something in a very particular way. 
and what is what is valuable is a hundred percent of perception. So we're having an explosion now in NFTs. Jack Dorsey, the the founder of Twitter, is auctioning off the first ever tweet. And right now, the current bid, uh, as of this morning, is two and a half million dollars to be the sole owner of the first tweet. Uh, rock band Kings of Leon just announced their 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 new record, which is now a hit, is 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 the first record to be an NFT record. Um, and now, c- celebrities <laughs> of all sorts, celebrities in air quotes, are dreaming up digital shit to sell people as NFTs. Uh-huh. And so there's an emerging explosion going on here. And so the big aha, as stupid as this is going to sound to a lot of people, is if you're native digital buying um, a $6.6 million piece of art, a.k.a. a GIF, <laughs> makes sense to you because your digital life matters in a way your physical life matters. And so I think this has profound impact on everything about the way we live, work, and play. And I'll give you a simple example. You're starting to see it in some of the data around behavior. Um, are we at a point in time where uh, women, for example, don't buy very much physical clothes anymore? So maybe they buy digital fashion. There are digital fashion houses that sell limited run digital dresses and shoes and you name it that you can use on your Instagram or you can do whatever you want to do digitally with it. So will we get to a point where if I'm LVMH, a disproportionate amount of my revenue comes from selling digital clothing, digital fashion. And then in the physical world, when that same woman wants to go to a nice party or an activity or what have you, maybe she does a rent the runway just like do people buy cars anymore well maybe if you like to play race games on on the internet maybe you spend a lot of money to buy a limited edition lamborghini digital lamborghini from lamborghini but you actually don't bother owning a car because you could just uber whenever the fuck you want and so i think if you start to think in category after category there are people now who are spending a tremendous amount of money buying digital land digital land bob And so I know this sounds insane to a lot of people, but I think we just hit a tipping point in the emergence. And look, I don't know whether NFTs are going to be the thing. I'm not smart enough to know about the specifics of the technology. But what we are seeing, why I do say the future just changed and most people missed it, is if you're a person for whom your digital life is at least equal in importance to your physical life, if not more important, the likelihood that you spend time, money, and energy buying things in your digital life goes up exponentially. And so I think we are at the dawn of a massive transformation in the way we live, work, and play and where people spend money. And there are physical product companies today that I think will either go out of business or end up having a meaningful percentage and potentially over time, a disproportionate amount of their revenue coming from digital products. So will Gucci in the future make more money off digital Gucci bags than physical ones? I think that's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Uh, Chris, I want to tell you, I want to confess, um, 
I didn't, I missed that. I, I didn't know that this future shift was coming. So I learned about this today from you. And, you know, my first reaction about that six, six point million dollars purchase of a gift, you know, I can, I can chuckle about that. <laughs> How silly. But um, the person who did that uh, earned that $6.6 .6 million. <laughs> so maybe a bozo, maybe, you know, I have no idea. I don't know who the person, but still, this is somebody who was able to earn some money, make a decision. I'm going to spend it on this. So it points to something. And also, I guess, you know, the, the, the path of human history. And, you know, if you want to take a look at it in a shorter term over the last 20 or 30 years is there's a whole lot of stuff to when it first came up, people said that that's just nuts. That is nuts. Mark Benioff, you know, as you said, and, uh, and how boldly what was that 1999, he created the, you know, slash no software. He went right up in their face about it. And, you know, quite, he wasn't trying to nibble at the fringes and find a couple little things. So the things you're talking about, so it can be music, it can be fashion, it can be cars. And I really like, you know, when you said digital land. Um, and I think for people who's whose uh, psyche or their mindset, their worldview is one that digital is uh, a tool, an accessory, an enhancer out on the edges a little bit. I'm never going to understand that. I, I, I'm not sure I would ever understand it. But to, to understand that for a lot of other people, because you're describing it right now, that's hundreds of millions of people around the world, you know, who are in that, uh, what you call native digital space there. And I, I'm no mathematician, Chris, like you, but I would say that number is only going to go up and it's going to go up fast. Yes. And those of us who are non-native digital, our reliance on digital increases every day. I mean, you and I have talked about this before, but you know, we'd all be some kind of effed if it weren't for the internet and the cloud and mobile computing in the context of the pandemic in our personal lives. Never mind the fact that, don't be confused, that the technologies of our industry, and you and I have talked about this before, have sat at the core and continue to sit at the core of yeah. how humanity deals with this crisis, both the, the, the healthcare crisis, the financial crisis, I mean, supply chain integration, sharing of data for research, I mean, all of it, right? Our ability to come, quote unquote, come back from this virus, both on the health front and on the economic front, don't get, don't 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 be confused. This comeback is sponsored by the cloud. I agree with you, brother. I, I do, I do. And uh, what's so interesting, and I think something as well we've touched on. This is not going to be a linear move. And I've I was thinking about that, Chris, as you were describing, you know the, uh, you know this this new future and what digital stuff more and more is coming to mean to more and more people. Um, the whole power of the cloud, it's not this straight linear move like, oh, everybody's going to get a little more efficient and save a little more money, save a couple pennies, do this a minute faster here or there. It's going to profoundly lever up, lever up what you've been calling, you know, the banister moments. There's going to be more and more banisters, uh, you know, in pretty wild ways. Companies doing things they were never able to do before. And as we as individuals, as consumers see those, we're going to say, Oh, I like that. I like that so much. I want more of that. So whoosh, they got to crank it up, crank it up. So it's hard to imagine where this goes. And then over on the, the uh, sort of the crypto world and the NFTs, why not? It's a big, big world out there. And then if somebody leans into what you were saying about the, the disproportionate share of uh, 
of revenue growth, of market cap growth goes to people who do stuff quite different outside new category. Very, very interesting, sir. And this, you know, digital products monster category is something most people uh, have not woken up to yet. Yeah. Chris, if you, you know, just over your right shoulder there, I'm not sure is that Joe Frazier swinging a big left at Ali and Ali stepping back. How many years might it be until somebody with one of these new digital things, what are you, somebody's going to be able to step into the ring against Ali or Frazier, right? You know that? that Oh, for sure. We will come to that. So then somebody's, oh yeah, but you didn't really do it. Like, well, it depends on what your definition of is, is everything goes back to Clinton. Uh, and, and we are, yeah. we are going to be faced with what's real. Yes. In Japan, yes. people marry digital characters. So that's happening. So uh, we just had uh, one of the world leading authorities on ethics, uh, Dr. Uh, Susan Lieto on a podcast from Stanford. She's got a brand new book out called The Power of Ethics. It's unbelievable. She's mm-hmm. incredible. Anyway, one of the things she talks about is that ethics used to feel a lot more black and white and the gray is expanding. And so one of the questions she asked me, for example, is are bot therapists a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know. It's at first, to your point, it sounds creepy and weird. On the other hand, if people are marrying bots in Japan, are you going to have a bot there? Maybe a bot therapist will be amazing. Maybe you can, maybe the bot therapist using AI and machine learning learns what kind of therapy techniques work better for me than a human being does. And maybe I get 10 X more done with my, I don't fucking know. (laughs) But what I do know is we just had a tipping point and most people don't get it. When somebody is willing to pay six and a half million dollars for a gif because they view it as art the category of what's art just changed and it's yes it has profound impact in the art world but it has profound impact in the world world because most of us make shit for a living right and if you make shit for a living um what i think this means is Going forward, the more digital the shit you make, the more important you're going to be. <laughs> well, I, I don't know that we can we can top that. I think as a closer, uh, my, my friend, I, I think that's it. That's it, Chris. No, fascinating. Fascinating. Lockhead on different. Uh, you have you have tried that path. Uh, you know, eagerly, happily, successfully for a lot of years, Chris. And uh, what I think is so wonderful is you haven't lost your sense of awe and wonder and curiosity about it, plus the willingness to come out and say stuff like, hey, this is the future. We might not all get it. We might not all like it, but, you know, that doesn't change the fact. So thank you for continuing to uh, poke, probe, prod, illuminate, and, uh, and differentiate. Thank you, brother. It's a pleasure as always. All right, Chris. If you, now, final question before you go. If you had to get into that digital ring and the guy coming out of the other corner was either Ali or Frazier, who would you pick? 
this may, I'll just tell you the first thing that popped into my mind. Uh, I don't want to fight Muhammad Ali, so I'll take Frazier. I want to hug Muhammad Ali. Not that I really want to hurt Joe Frazier because I'm a huge fan, but uh, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't want to have to punch Ali in the face. And given how he moves, if you assume the video game is him at his peak, I probably wouldn't be able to touch him anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think yeah, you need to be too worried about hurting him. All right, my dear Maybe friend. Maybe if you, me, and one other guy try to fight him. <laughs> yeah. How about uh, you and two other guys, not including me? Because uh, Chris, somebody did that with him, right? They did that computer boxing thing 30, 40 years ago. And, you know, uh, it was, uh, they did a simulation, Ali and Rocky Marciano. And uh, according to this computer simulation, Rocky Marciano beats Ali. And Howard Cosell had Ali on one day is asking about that. <laughs> you know, Ali just sort of was disqualified. He goes, okay, sure, Howard. Sure, Howard. He said, I'm 6'4", 235. I got, you know, this 42-inch arm reach. He said, now this other guy who's a terrific fighter, he said, I take nothing away from him. He's 5'10". He weighed 205. His arms are 36. But he's going <laughs> to, he just went through this this whole thing like this. Okay, Howard, you want to buy that? He said, you go right ahead. You go right <laughs> ahead. So if nothing else, Chris, a lot of this stuff I think that you've shared today will get everybody thinking in different directions, which is always a good thing. Then we decide to make up our mind. You want to go different, want to do this, that, whatever. But I think you've given people, you've shined a bright light into a very, very <laughs> interesting future. Thank you for doing that. Thank you, my friend. Love you. All right, Chris. Thanks a lot, folks, all of you. I hope you've enjoyed this ride into the future around some parts of America that maybe need to be addressed, readdressed, sat up and take notice of, and uh, just some numbers here that, uh, that really stand out. Hope you've enjoyed it all. Chris Lockhead on Different. He is the man. See you next time.